Well, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are in the fourth and final week of a message series called Summer in the Psalms. And uh, throughout the month of July, we've been spending some time as a church family uh, in book three of the Psalms, which includes Psalms 73 through 89. Uh, The Psalms are categorized into five different books, uh, with each book reflecting one of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so book three... Uh, we, we think it reflects Leviticus with a major theme being sanctuary or worship. Uh, we clearly see that you know, in every psalm in book three. So I would say that if you'd like to learn more about the book of Psalms as a whole, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first message in our series. Uh, in that message, I spent some time teaching uh, on some of the different ways that we can read the Psalms, uh, study the Psalms, apply the Psalms to our everyday lives. I also talked about how the Psalms were used as worship in the life of the early church. Uh, they're used as worship in the church today as well. And uh, Jesus uh, quoted the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. So if they're important to Jesus, they should be important to us. Amen? And so uh, in his introduction uh, of his commentary on the Psalms, uh, Warren Wiersbe, he had this to say about the book. He said, the book of Psalms uh, has been and still is the irreplaceable devotional guide, prayer book, and hymnal of the people of God. And I think that's a pretty good explanation of the Psalms. They were meant to be read devotionally. They were meant to be prayed during difficult seasons in your life, as well as seasons of prosperity. And they're meant to be sung by the church as we worship God together. And so as you've listened to these messages over the past few weeks, As you've read book three uh, in your own time, my prayer has been that you've been able to learn more about God's faithfulness, about his unchanging character, his his nature, and that you've been able to draw closer to God this summer. So today, I'm going to wrap up our series uh, by preaching a message on Psalm 86. And I just love that they had a video that went along with this. We used that at the beginning of worship uh, today from Psalm 86. Uh, This psalm, is the only psalm in book three that's attributed to David, which is interesting because David wrote most of the psalms, yet it's the only one attributed to him in book three. And it's placed between two psalms of the sons of Korah on either side. Now, what's interesting about this psalm is that we we don't know the exact context in which it was written, Uh, but we do know, as we read it, that it was written during a difficult time in David's life. He was going through some stuff. We clearly see this in the language that he used. So Psalm 86, if I had to describe it, I think it's a psalm of lament. And it's kind of a churchy word. It's, It's a prayer expressing deep sorrow. Uh, pain, or confusion. But while it's a prayer of lament, it's also a prayer of trust. And specifically, David putting his trust in the Lord. This psalm demonstrates uh, the relationship between God and man. It highlights God's steadfast love uh, that's offered to every one of us and, and the trust that we can offer back to him. I would say that, you know, not knowing the exact context in which this psalm was written is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because it makes this psalm applicable to a variety of different circumstances in our lives today. So David was going through some stuff. We don't know exactly what it was. You may be going through some stuff today. 
And my prayer is that these words would be encouraging to you, that they would help you maybe renew your trust in the Lord today. So this is a medium-length psalm. And so I've decided to, uh, that we're going to read it and learn from it in three different parts uh, this morning. And the application is just going to be throughout the message today. So if you like to take notes, I think there will be plenty of opportunities for you to do that as we learn about the steadfast love of God. Regardless of what we go through in life, God doesn't change. Uh, his love remains the same. His faithfulness remains the same. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? So in uncertain times and, and when he felt inadequate to face what was in front of him, uh, David found three encouragements in the Lord, three truths. And I want to share these truths with you today. If you're taking notes, the first one is this, um, that God's promises can be trusted. That God's promises can be trusted. We know there are over 8,000 promises that are made by God uh, to us in his word. And God's promises can be trusted. We see this in the first seven verses. If you'll follow along with me, uh, David wrote these words. He says, uh, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. What an amazing passage in the Psalms. So this first section, if you didn't notice, it's a prayer. This is a prayer that David prayed. He's praying to God, asking him to hear his prayer, to answer his prayer, to guard his life, and to bring joy into his life. So it's a prayer, but it's also this declaration of trust. Um, I can't help but notice uh, David's words here. He prayed, I am faithful to you, God. You are my God. I put my trust in you. So he's, he's declaring He's putting a stake in the road. He's saying, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. Regardless of what's going on, I'm going to trust you. You know, David resolved to trust God, specifically the promise or the covenant that God had made with his people. And the basis for this trust, the foundation for this trust, I think is in verse 5. He says, you, Lord, are forgiving and good abounding in love to all who call on you. That's the basis for our trust in God. You are forgiving. You are good, Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. And then in verse 7, he expressed confidence in God's ability to answer his prayer. He says, when I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. He's thinking back to the many times in the past when God has heard his prayer, has answered his prayer, when God has been faithful. Again, we don't know exactly what was going on in David's life, but that didn't seem to matter. See, whatever it was, he knew that God was greater still, that God could be trusted. So David was a son of the covenant. 
And you belong to God. That word covenant, it's another kind of churchy word. I'll give you a definition for that this morning, just so you know maybe a little deeper what that means. When we see that word in the Bible, a covenant um, is a relationship between two people who make a binding promise to each other, and then they work together uh, to reach a common goal based on that promise. And so covenant relationships are found all throughout the Bible. There are personal covenants between people. There are political covenants between kings. There are legal covenants between nations. And then I think most importantly, um, there are covenants between God and his people, promises made to one another. There's a covenant in the Old Testament um, that's literally named after David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And I'll give you a little bit of context for this promise that was made. So God's people had finally entered Canaan, the promised land, after years of wandering in the wilderness. And they eventually get to the point where I think they become tired and restless, and they look around at neighboring nations, and they see that everybody else has a leader, like a king, and we want to follow suit. We want a king as well. And we know, you know, reading through the Old Testament, I think they really drop the ball with this one. Instead of trusting God and his leading and his provision in their life, they put their faith in a person. Well, God gave them the desires of their heart. He anointed Saul as Israel's first king, Um, but Saul fell away from God. He failed to obey God. He was ultimately rejected by God. So God then chose David as the next king over Israel. David became a successful leader Um, in many ways. He he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. He was able to overcome Israel's enemies. He uh, restored um, order to the kingdom. He even wanted to build a temple so that God could once again dwell with his people. And so seeing this, God responded uh, to this desire by making a covenant promise with David, promising to make his name great, and specifically that he was going to raise up a descendant from David's line whose throne and whose kingdom would never end. Right? That's the, the key part of this Davidic covenant. Now, part of this covenant was for David and his descendants to remain faithful to God. And uh, do you think they remained faithful? Some of the time, <laughs> not most of the time. <laughs> We know that David failed many times over. He's, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart, but he had many failures. He fell short of God's standard over and over again. And I, I debated whether I was going to talk about this this morning, but you have someone like Saul on one hand, and then you have someone like David. You know, why, why are there so many details about David's life, of him falling short? I mean, David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. All of these things. Yet he's called a man after God's own heart. And then you have Saul, and we really don't get a whole lot of detail of his life. We definitely see that he was pretty messed up. But why did God reject him and accept David? And really, the answer is given to us in the book of Acts. And it's because when David fell short... When David sinned, um, he had a repentant heart. He had an obedient heart to God. When God said, hey, you're, you're messing up, right? You need to recognize what's going on in your life. David was able to come to a place where he says, you know what, God, you're right. My way is wrong and your way is right. What happened in Saul's life when God said those things? Well, he was disobedient. He rejected God. And I, and I think there's a lesson to be learned there in our lives you know, I don't think that there's ever going to be a book written 
that says your name and, and you know, this person was a man or a woman after God's own heart, but that's my desire in life. God, I want to chase after you. I want to follow you faithfully. And yes, I'm going to sin. I'm going to fall short. I'm going to miss the mark. But when your Holy Spirit convicts me, I want to respond with repentance. I want to be obedient. I want to follow you once again. I want that faith to be restored in my life. And so this is, this is what we're seeing here is, you know, David failed many times over. We also know that his sons and their sons, they fell short. And so the question has to be asked with this covenant that was made, does that mean that it was broken, that it was, it was void, that God chose to not fulfill his promise? Absolutely not. See, despite David's failures and his son's failures over and over again, God kept his word. God provided a faithful descendant from David's family line. And we know because we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know that this descendant is Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all of the people, who lived a perfect, sinless life. He was fully God and fully man. Uh, We know that Jesus was wrongly accused. He was beaten, crucified, and buried. But after three days, he was raised from the dead. Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death, providing a way for us to be reconciled, to be made right with God, to have a relationship with God. We can be born again. And what a reminder, friends, that um, even when we fall short, and we will, probably today, we're going to fall short, we're going to miss the mark, even when we fall short, God follows through. Amen? Amen? Even when we are unfaithful, we have a faithful God. Amen? At this point in David's life, he learned that he could trust God no matter what, that God's promises can be trusted. And I hope that that's what you are learning as well. If we were to look at the Hebrew translation of this psalm, I'm not going to have us do that this morning. Um, That'd be kind of challenging to read. I'll just admit that. I don't know how to pronounce most of the words, and I don't expect you to be able to either. But if we were to go back and take some time and do that, you would actually see that David used three different names for God in this psalm. He used the name Jehovah. He used the name Adonai and Elohim. Uh, Jehovah means Lord, and it's always seen uh, with all capital letters. It distinguishes it from the other names that are used for God in the Bible. And this really points to the unchanging nature, the unchanging character of our God, that God is a perfect provider. His provision is perfect, that he gives us his peace. It's a kind of peace that surpasses uh, the world's understanding. He gives us uh, his uh, his peace, he shepherds our lives, he heals us, um, he makes us holy, which means we're set apart. He's our righteousness, and he is personal and present. God is not a distant God, he is present in our lives. So I think that's a good definition or ex- explanation for Jehovah God. Um, then he uses the name for God, um, Adonai, and that means the Lord or Master. And this really highlights God's sovereignty over his creation. In God's sovereignty, um, he is perfectly good, he is perfectly just, and he is perfectly loving. That's the description of God. And then he uses this name Elohim, which uh, means creator. It means uh, mighty and powerful. And so from the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God's might And his strength is clearly seen in his work in creation. It says that in the beginning, God created. 
created the heavens and the earth. So we know God simply spoke and the universe was made. How awesome is that? That God is that powerful. He's that mighty. He's that strong. He's Elohim. He's creator God. And so David's trust in God, we'll bring this back full circle, was ultimately rooted in who God is. His trust was rooted in who God is. You know, this past Sunday in children's church, I was told that the kids learned about how God is in control no matter what. No matter what goes on in your life, God is sovereign. God is in control. He can be trusted. And they looked at a situation that happened in the Apostle Paul's life in Acts chapter 16 to learn more about this truth. And at one point in the lesson, the kids were asked this question. Um, what can help you remember that God is in control no matter what? I want you to think about that for a second, as if I was asking you that question today. What can help you remember that God is in control no matter what? And I would be curious, you know, if we were to survey the room this morning, not to to shame anyone or anything like that, but how many of us would have a solid uh, biblical answer to that question? Well, at one point, uh, one of the kids, uh, I don't know if he raised his hand or just spoke out. Do you remember? He raised his hand. Okay, good, good. He raised his hand. Well, one of the kids, one of the kids who will go unnamed raised his hand. And this is what he said to this, this, this question. He says, we can know that God is in control because of what we know about him from the Bible and by looking at what he's already done for us. How awesome is that? Coming from the mouth of a child. What a clear understanding of truth. Coming from a young person who is learning about God and growing in the Lord. Friends, God's promises can be trusted. Amen? Number two, if you're taking notes, uh, God's character never changes. His character never changes. And we see this in verses 8 through 13. Uh, This is what David wrote. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That that should be part of our prayer too. Lord, give me an undivided heart. I think it's easy to be divided in this world. He says, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. This is what you've done in my life, Lord. This is what he's declaring. So what immediately stood out to me in this section is how David chose to speak about God. These are the descriptors that that he chose to use. He said, Lord, there is none like you. That's a pretty tall order. There is no one like you, God. You stand alone. No deeds can compare with yours. I don't want to skip over that because there's been some pretty awesome things that people have done in this world, right? But he's saying none of them compare to yours. They don't even hold a candle to you, God everyone will eventually come and worship you. That's another big statement. Like all of your creation, everyone that you've made will eventually come and worship you. Even if, I, even if they're rejecting you right now, Lord, at some point they will be on their knees. You are great. And then he says, you alone are God. There, there are no other gods except the God of the Bible. 
So David recognized and described the unchanging character of God. And really, verses 8 through 10 are the central verses of this psalm where David vocalized his trust in God. And I think verse 8 is the confession of a man who truly knew the Lord. He says, among the gods, there's none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. You see, it was through God's word, it was through worship, and through his own life experiences that David learned to trust God. Uh, Billy Graham once said that men change, right? People change. Fashions change. Conditions and circumstances change, but God never changes. There were a lot of people in David's life who changed, and often for the worst. His circumstances changed, often bringing more struggle into his life. But while all of this was happening, God never changed. He remained the same. Even in the face of circumstances that appeared to be prevailing against him, even when he felt like maybe maybe it was time to give up, God, he learned that he could trust God entirely because God's character never changes. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, I the Lord do not change. So what are some of these unchanging characteristics of God. You could call them attributes of God. I want to share just a few with you this morning. I think this is important for us to learn because, again, this is the foundation in our lives. This is um, the promises that we, we build our lives on. We learn that God is holy in, in his word, that he is holy. Uh, Max Anders says that God is infinite, eternal in spirit, the self-existent creator of the universe, and he's sovereign over it. Now, I think that's a really good start to this idea about God's holiness but there's so much more to this. We, we know that holiness means set apart, specifically set apart from sin to righteousness. And because of God's character and nature, who he is, um, he's incapable of sinning. God has never sinned and will never sin. In God, there is absolute holiness. He loves good. He hates evil. He wants us to be people who are also set apart for his glory. So God is holy. The second thing that we learn is that God is loving that God is loving. Um, God has loved us from the beginning with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. He created us. He knows every single one of you individually by name. He, he knows what you're going through. He knows the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups in your life. He made you. He wants to know you relationally. He has real compassion for us. He is steadfast in his love for us, pursuing us, chasing us. We know that God is merciful, and then we know mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Let me, let me say that again. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. See, God's mercies are endless. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that he saved us not because of righteousness, not because of righteous things we have done, not because of the good works in our lives, that's not how we're saved, but because of his mercy. So even though we deserve judgment, even though we deserve death and eternal separation from God because of our sin, God is merciful. He's merciful. We know that God is also good. God is good. This means that um, he always acts in accordance with what is right, true, and good. 
I hear in our society today a lot of people making truth claims about what is good, what is truth. Let me let you in on an important truth, friends. We don't get to decide that for ourselves. We have no moral basis other than Scripture that tells us what truth is and what it means for something to actually be good. And so if God says it's good, even if we disagree, then it is good. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And the fact that God is good means that he has no evil in him, that his intentions and his motives are always good. He always does what is right, and the outcome of his plan is always good. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. So God is good. We also know that God is wise. God is perfectly wise. Uh, This means that God has an abundance of knowledge and discernment. Um, In his wisdom, he's created the universe and he rules over it. Uh, God is all-knowing. He is all-wise. You know, we may not have all of the answers, but God does. Any amount of wisdom that we do have, the Bible says comes from him. James chapter 1 verse 5 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. So if you have a situation in your life this season and you need more of God's wisdom, the Bible says all you need to do is ask God and he will give you wisdom. He doesn't withhold that from his people. And this is something that kind of hit me this week. You know, how often do I pray for wisdom? I can tell you this. More times, I try to do things in my own understanding, in my own wisdom. And it usually doesn't end well. God is perfectly wise, and we need his wisdom if we're going to be the people he's called us to be. We also know that God is just. He is just. This means he he is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creation. Um, There's a story in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, it's, it's a parable, actually. And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And it's this parable about a persistent widow. And in this story, she pleads with a judge over and over again. She, she bothered him for justice to be done against her adversary until justice was done. And we learn through this parable that in the same way, uh, God, like this, this judge, will bring about justice for the people who fear him and who love him, who live for him. That God is perfectly just. And then finally, we see that God is faithful. And these are not all of the unchanging characteristics of God or the attributes of God, but I think it's a good start. That God is faithful. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 reminds us that God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. So this is a declaration that God is faithful. And what, what does that mean, faithful? Because we use that word today, and, and I think it's one of those words, kind of like love, that gets misused. You know, I, I think we say that word faithful, but It's got such a a deeper-rooted meaning, especially as we talk about God. Um, In the original Greek, uh, so in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, uh, that word for faithful or faithfulness, it means reliable. It means trustworthy and permanent. Um, It's describing someone who can always, 100% of the time, be counted on. 
How many of you have someone in your life that you would say um, you can trust 100% of the time no matter what? Any of you? So a few of you think that you do. But we're human. And none of us are reliable 100% of the time. I tell, I've told my wife, like, I, I love you. I'm, I want to serve you. I, I want to invest in our marriage. But there will be times that I will fail you. I'm not going to be reliable 100% of the time. You know, and I think that honesty is good because it helps us understand that we need to rely on God. But let me tell you about someone who is reliable 100% of the time. That God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He is reliable 100% of the time. So God's character never changes. This is a, a truth that fueled David's faith, and it should fuel our faith as well. The fact that our faith is rooted in who God is. And then finally, we'll wrap up the message with a point that I think is uh, certainly applicable, and it is that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. The circumstances, the troubles, the trials in your life, guess what? They belong to the Lord. We see this in verses 14 through 17. Uh, David gets pretty honest here with God. He's saying, you know, arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So this final section uh, leads us to believe that part of David's troubles at this point in time uh, came from a physical threat. Right? This, was, this was getting real. His enemies were attacking him on all sides. People were literally trying to kill him. And he describes these people. He says these people have no fear of the Lord. They have no love for God's people, no regard for God. And this is a, a, a describer, a characteristic of people that we see all throughout the Bible, and specifically in the Psalms. People who live in this way, they acknowledge to themselves, or they, they say they believe there is no God, or I have no need for him in my life. And that's a reminder to us today, friends, that when, when there's no foundation and pillar of truth, people are left to their own devices following the desires of their sinful nature. Even though our society tells us that it's narrow-minded to believe in ultimate truth, God's word tells us that we should run after it with all of our hearts. Jesus said the truth is what sets us free. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him. So he's specifically talking to those who believe. He said, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. So if you do what this book says, he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. There is freedom found in relationship with Jesus Christ. There's freedom found in obedience to God's word. It brings joy. It brings purpose. It brings meaning into our lives because God's way is the best way. God's ways are perfectly good. 
when David's enemies were ruthless and hateful and hurtful, he recognized that God is the complete opposite of that. He looked at the problems that he was facing in his life, and and he realized, okay, God, I know all of this is terrible, all of this is going on, but you are different than this. In verse 15, he says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I wonder if that would be a good thing for us to do, that when you're struggling in a relationship, you're struggling at work, um, you're struggling maybe in your marriage and your parenting, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. That we look at that situation, we say, you know what, I know that may be kind of crummy right now, but God, you are this. We need to speak that truth back to ourselves. David did that throughout the Psalms, that God, you are faithful, you are just, you will provide for my needs, not my greeds, but my needs. You are perfectly loving, even when I'm interacting with this person who is not. (laughs) And when we fall short, when we are unfaithful, We can come back to that truth that God is. As we go about our day seeking to live for Jesus, our confidence, our security, our strength is found in him, not in the world or our circumstances. You know, for David, he knew that the battle ultimately belonged to the Lord. And this truth became the basis of his prayer that concluded the psalm. The very last two verses This is what he says in Psalm 86, verses 16 and 17. It says, turn to me and have mercy on me. Remember, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. David deserved a a lot of bad things. Turn to me and have mercy on me, God. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I love that phrase, you know, show your strength in behalf of your servant. It's the same request that he gave in verse 2 at the very beginning of the psalm. He says, save your servant who trusts you. This is a psalm of trust. It's coming back to that foundation of, God, when everything else is shaky, you hold the world and its pillars, that you are trustworthy. David didn't want to be like the rest of the world. He wanted to live a life that was sold out for God, serving God with everything that he had. When I was growing up in youth group, um, I think the phrase was, you know, you wanted to be a Jesus freak, <laughs> you know, and, and the world looked at that as kind of a negative thing, but if you were in Christ, you're like pumped up about it. You're like, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak, you know, you had your WWJD bracelet and all that, and he, but regardless of the flash, he, he just wanted to be faithful to God. He wanted to live a life that was sold out for God, serving him with everything that he had. And ultimately, we see here, even though he had some some pretty terrible people in his life, ultimately he wanted God to help him so that others would see just how good God really is. He was more concerned about God getting the glory than himself. And that should be our response as well. We have a lot of difficult people in our lives. Amen? People are difficult. Instead of wanting bad things to happen to those people, we should want them to see a good God. To come to the Lord, for God to use us in such a way that they would see his goodness, that they would see his faithfulness, that they would believe and follow him, that they would experience the same thing we have, that what God has done in our lives, he can also do in theirs. So this psalm, I think, is a great example of what it looks like um, to turn away from the storms of life and keep our focus on the Lord. This is a lesson on the importance of perspective. When everything around you is in chaos, 
And it may be right now that the truth remains that God's promises can be trusted, God's character never changes, and the battle belongs to him. It's not about running from our problems. That's not what we see here. It's about learning how to rely on God and how to trust him in the midst of them. And so we can pray that our circumstances, our trials, our troubles would help us learn how to trust God more. That they would give us an opportunity to point other people to Jesus and that ultimately God would get all the glory for everything that we go through in this life. The victories, the challenges where we learn to rely on him more and more, that God would get all the glory. Psalm 86 is the heart of a man who knew the Lord, who trusted God. And my prayer is that you would follow in those steps, that you would know the Lord as well.